Welcome to Circuit and Gear, a podcast about scenic automation and other cool tech. I'm Cody. I'm Christian. I'm Harry. We're going to kick off uh, a new series of interviews with our peers in scenic automation. Our first guest is Ben Clark. Welcome to the podcast, Hello. Ben. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us as our inaugural guest. Yeah. Very yeah, exciting. exciting stuff. <laughs> first and last. <laughs> Well, we'll know that in a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, what do you What do you do in uh, entertainment? Like, what do you do right now, and how did you get here? Yeah. So right now, I run a technical design and production services company called First Tech. I also freelance with a number of different shops, mostly with Show Motion, but I've worked with uh, Empire Technical Fabrication, Hudson Scenic, uh, All Access, and a few other theaters. And I am also currently a professor at San Diego State University. Very cool. That's a lot of hats. <laughs> <laughs> Big head. You sound, sound like you keep busy. Try to. Keep me out of trouble. How'd you, how'd you get to this, uh, this sort of multifaceted uh, place you are right now? What got you into um, theater and entertainment? So I started working in theater when I was 14 in high school. The stage crew at my local high school, you know, uh, they would rent out the theaters to like local church groups and stuff like that. So some of the students were the stage crew and would set up and strike for those events and then for the school shows. So that was my job in high school. Uh, and I just kept doing it. Anything in particular that kept you doing it? Oh, you know. Couldn't the, be the money. <laughs> I was about to say, the large pay tax and short hours. <laughs> All the glory of it. Uh, you know, it's it's an interesting, it's an interesting craft. Um it really, it's one of the last, you know, this is something that I've heard from people as diverse as Alan Hendrickson and Gareth Connors. Uh, it's like the last field where you get to go from ideation, you know, concept theory, all the way through implementation uh, with technology. So most other trades and professions kind of chop it up mm -hmm. between like basic research engineering kind of theory, fabrication, installation, but in the theater, we're still doing it soup to nuts. So it's exciting. And when it works, it's rewarding. When it works, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On those occasions. So you started at 14 and then uh, worked through high school and then went to undergrad for theater or something different? No, I was a history major, if you believe it or not. Um, <laughs> but I worked in theater all through college as well um and also television a little bit um but that's and then i went out into the professional world and then i did go back to school which is where i ran into harry um and then been kicking it again out here trying to make a buck so where where did you go to undergrad i went to harvard university nice where was grad school uh, it was a place that used to be called the Yale School of Drama, but I think they shut it down. <laughs> oh, so some pretty low-tier schools then. Nothing too fancy. They were my safety schools. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's awesome. So when you went out of history and then went into the professional force, like uh, workforce, then you went straight to theater? Or did you try to pursue anything with that degree at all? No, I didn't. Uh <laughs> I didn't pursue history as a profession. That's um, if you want long hours and low paychecks, try becoming a liberal arts professor in 21st century America. Um, sure. You know, 
you know, it was the education was in pursuit of, uh, you know, the liberal arts ideal of learning something about the world in general before becoming too stuck in a vocation. Uh, you know, the nice thing about that particular school is that the American Repertory Theater is really integrated into it. Uh, so I spent, I my sophomore year, I started working for uh, the ART and basically just never stopped. I did a year with them after school. And then I was in Boston after a couple other stops. Um, I was back in Boston working for a company called Arts Emerson, uh, but I kept still doing projects with the ART. Um, so they're a great... They were a great place to learn a lot of the trade. That's that's awesome. Were you primarily, were you doing kind of like general theater stuff then? Or were you like scenery specific, automation specific or? Scenery, what? very much scenery okay. specific. Um, and when they did automation projects, I worked on them, not in any like significant design or supervisory capacity, but, you know, <laughs> more like get this thing off the truck, put this bolt <laughs> in this hole, turn yeah. wrench. <laughs> And so then how, um, how long after, uh, like working professional, did you think working professionally, did you think like, oh, maybe I want to like go get my master's in this. It's like, which sent you to Yale. What was that like? It was five uh, years. Um, five years. Yeah. And it's, you start, you know, there's, um, there are things that are just better learned, not on the fly, but in a uh, concentrated way, um, you know, structural design. Uh, mechanical design, some of the those concepts, uh, really, you can do it on the side, but you really have to be dedicated to it and have some natural aptitude for it. If you go to school, you just get a focused punch of it. You know, a good example I used was AutoCAD. Like I started using Vectorworks and AutoCAD informally in college, but I never got like a really concentrated training in it until I did a class at the Boston Architectural College. And then I did like just a really short period of AutoCAD and I'm like, oh, wow, it would have been a lot more efficient if I had just like focused on this for a short period of time rather than teasing it out over years. And then I'm like, oh, hey, maybe school is actually worth something. <laughs> um, so if they're teaching the skills you need, uh, I think school is an appropriate choice, although not the only choice. In terms of... Uh... You know, we are always coming at it from the scenic automation side of things because that's our myopic uh, point of view. Do you consider yourself a scenic automation professional or are you more of a broad, like, you know, man, jack of many trades? How would you view uh, yourself these days? Well, I mean, again, it's the theater. We all wear a lot of hats. I, technical designer and installer. I mean, integrator is a fun term that people like to throw around. <laughs> sure. Um, technical manager. Sure. Yeah, less management, more about the design and implementation of okay. effects. And also just scenery. And I mean, it is it is also, you could try and divide everything into control and mechanics and scenery, but at the end of the day, they all have to come together. Um, so like I'm doing this effect for the La Jolla Playhouse, which is like a sliding panel, but I'm also drafting the whole damn unit, uh, which is, you know, so you spend 80% of your time doing scenery stuff for that 20% hit of like, ooh, what kind of linear actuator am I going to use on this? Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's always great when you can do it all. It's a rare skill <laughs> yeah. set. Yeah. That is a total a difference of like what our little view of like the slice of the pie that we've staked out is like we often get to like we drew the winch or we drew the, you know, 
the lift part and then you're like and i imagine some scenery goes on top of it. <laughs> and <laughs> i'll do a dashed rectangle and send it to our lovely customers that want something and they'll you know so like it's it's an interesting shift between like being really in the weeds of like doing the whole effect and the scenery and you know all of the other needs that happen there versus like our little scope is is usually pretty pared down yeah and i mean it's connor's gareth did something and the company connor's uh is pretty revolutionary in turning stage machines into products in a way that i mean other people have tried but none too successfully i would say so that's pretty exciting um and also like (laughs) i think one of the things i like most about Gareth Connor and Creative Connors in general is the dislike of PLCs, and the, uh, <laughs> the and I know everyone ends up using it, but like just getting past ladder logic and that sort of approach and using some of the more more recent. Um, I'm doing air quotes, which is very effective on a podcast. We've moved past <laughs> the technology of the 80s. We're into the 90s and early 2000s, maybe now. Exactly, we're using computer chips. You know more logically and not in a way that's backwards compatible with like analog electricians. Mm-hmm. We, we across the last couple, I don't know, I guess five years have flirted with reentering the, the world of PLCs. And it does kind of feel like the, you know, the Charlie Brown football. Cause we go like, maybe <laughs> they're not as bad as we remember them and we'll yeah. like them more and they'll be easier to implement by our customers and everyone won't hate troubleshooting them. And we get like, a third of the way down the line and we're like jesus christ this just <laughs> doesn't terrible. yeah it's yeah like the there are a lot of cooler plcs now than there were you know sure. five ten years ago for sure you can tweet like, at a plc now PLC <laughs> it's can true tweet at you. Yeah. hashtag mm-hmm. faster hashtag faster <laughs> um <laughs> yeah and there's like a lot of cool things in there and then every time we try to like extrapolate it into like a box that we give to someone to run with something it we haven't yet figured out how to make it not like cool and then you're gonna need to set some dip switches and then you're gonna need to like open you know go to the web, xyz do yeah. this configuration and download it then upload it to the plc and yeah we yeah, were yeah. pretty well, close to doing that with uh ethercat it's true and i mean and we also went down the the route with um the schneider plcs too Oh, yeah, mm. that's true. Yeah, more recently. Yeah. But yeah, we we try to stay out of that mix as much as we can. Keep it close. Yeah. <laughs> but and that's all I want to say about PLCs. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say the only other thing I would say and this probably jumps down our list a little bit quickly so we could rearrange it or cut it. But <laughs> like the thing about PLCs is that they are so feature rich and they're like, they've got all the juicy little nuggets of things that sure. Like are th- that we have been missing along the way. And like, that has always been the thing that we're most excited about is like, Oh, and we could just quickly get, you know, split ASLD cell S curve motion profiling mm-hmm. tight groups, fancy sure. safety, like all those other things. And every time it just falls down a bit, but then like incrementally across the past, you know, two or three years, we've like bolstered. And I say we, I mean, it's primarily Christian, uh, uh, our ability to like update our circuit boards. And so like, we're able to like 
we're currently in the process of like getting a new motion controller, doing it all on the card level and like getting us like closer to current uh <laughs> early 2000 times. standards yeah yeah, yeah. those are all features it. i would love to see in your products yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. hopefully coming no, i mean the, one of the problems with i mean the, it feels like often with the plcs it's like you're guaranteeing that you need a higher level of support for the mm-hmm. technology at that point and i mean like I'm going to get like an angry letter from Mitsubishi now, but like all PLC programming software is like 10,000 buttons that you need, <laughs> like, a, like a map and like a guide to, to get through to, and like, obviously when you start using it, you learn it, but like, it's not user friendly. It's not stuff you can just, it's not Arduino IDE, right. which, yeah. you know, they're actually starting to implement that in an industrial, in, in industrial enclosures in a stable way. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. So and I think you're just hitting on the tension that we keep talking about a lot as we're looking at new product development where it's like this, you know, there's the feature rich at a great price point of modern PLCs versus automation for everyone. How accessible is it? And those things mm-hmm. are frequently fighting against each other right. as we as we design day to day. Yeah. We have like a lot of customers that are pretty good at like winches and machines and like need control. And then you're like, go like down the PLC path and you're like, cool. And then you're going to need to understand ladder logic and like high level networking. You're like, ah, (laughs) (laughs) like, do you know structured text? Like, (laughs) I think one of our lighting guys knows that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. That was a real jump (laughs) Um, from uh, where we were, we were, we were started. Uh, One more, like, uh, soft toss so you're an author i actually i have not asked you this before how did what what spurred you to write a book was it for the riches of uh publication in 2022 is that is that what was spurring (laughs) you on all those royalties yeah well it's um so the book is called tips and tricks of the stagehand uh it's available at all of your normal bookstores but if you go to lulu.com actually if you go to modernstagecraft.com there's a link that'll take you right to a Lulu page where you can get it. Um, I think I think we could throw a link in the, the notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be great. Um, so it's like a gothic romance novel. Uh, <laughs> I thought the title "Tips and Tricks of the Stage" had would just pull people in. Um, <laughs> no, so it's a uh, you know it's there are just things that I felt like should be written down there things I wanted to it's actually you know how I know I didn't screw it up too badly is that I actually keep a copy by my desk and I do find myself flipping it open to go look at the reference section because there's stuff in there that was just isn't in the backstage handbook isn't really convenient to google it as quickly as you'd want um and so it's all there and then you know there's a lot of the introductory stuff it's it's useful too because it's like how do you lay out center line and plaster line like if someone's new you can explain it to them, but like, like, so, you know, in a, in a normal theater season, you have like six shows or whatever. Right. So you're only going to lay out center line and plastiline six times. So you could work at a theater for years and never be on the crew that does that. And so you've been in the job for years and now you've still never done this one really important task. Right. Um, You've seen the head carp do it repeatedly and been the guy holding the tape measure, but you're not really quite sure what's going on. Exactly. But now there's the images to walk you through this process. 
Yeah, and it's not, none of it's, you know, nothing we do is that, I usually describe it as just a giant pile of simple concepts. Like, there's nothing, I mean, you know, at the basic level, it's just a switch that's on or off. Uh, And then you just pile up a bunch of that stuff and you get to scenic automation. But you got to know each one of those steps. And a lot of it hasn't been written down for a lot of years. So I felt like, hey, let's, uh, let's be a good profession and actually record some of what we do. I mean, the best book on scenery was written in 1973. Like, we should be catching up on this stuff. <laughs> things have happened in the interim yeah no i, th- yeah, I think exactly i think it's incredibly useful and the way you've you've laid it out is super practical and honestly like a little bit more useful perhaps in the backstage handbook even dare i say yeah um, especially yeah, the I mean, part where you yeah. you have the hole to drill on the side so you can <laughs> safety it off i really love that detail yeah it doesn't go through any of the text right no <laughs> no it's clear nice I think it's cool because it's like a book that is, you know, the backstage handbook stands on its own, but it's a lot of like cool, like here's a photo of something and here's what it's called. And that's super, super helpful in a lot of cases and like, what gives a do? little bit of info. But then there's like the really like lofty, like kind of like dense textbooks of like what kind of like theater quote unquote is. And then like there's not the like practical, like I don't need a book about how to lay out center line, <laughs> but I want like a paragraph like and a photo and it's got like all of those sort of tidbits which is pretty badass like it's just like a little bit more info that you actually need yeah yeah or like how to foot a flat like what do, what do they mean when you need to give it more foot and you're like what like we do we need a lot of explanation no but we, we need enough to understand that like you need a, the thing to tip out enough that it stays against the wall and doesn't fall over yeah and, and the first one and not the subsequent ones <laughs> right. You know, it, another way of looking at that book is it's a long list of things that happened to me. Like, <laughs> I think all, like, you know, you know, how the first tip is about a forklift and the difference in language when you're driving or around a forklift. And I mean, that's, I got pinned by a forklift. So I felt I should start there. Um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, the other, the other cool thing about it is obviously because this is like, I didn't come up with all this stuff. People taught me all this stuff. Uh, we give the a portion of the the proceeds goes right back to the behind the scenes charity. So if you buy the book, you're actually donating to behind the scenes, which is this great charity, which they've started to focus really on mental health among, you know, entertainment professionals, which is demonstrably important and really a problem. Um, Yeah. Sorely lacking in the industry for sure. Yeah. It's definitely something we need to pay attention to, especially after the pandemic. Um, Mm -hmm. And the other thing is you can submit your own tip and trick. If you have something that you would like to see, we'll put it into the next edition. There's a submission form on modern stagecraft. So throw it in there. You'll, we'll get it in there and, you know, hopefully it's a living document. Awesome. Very cool. Oh, and shout out Mike Zhu for those awesome. Oh yeah. uh, Yeah. And the the illustrations are and base and the general, it doesn't look like crap because Michael Sue uh, <laughs> is a good friend of ours. Uh, I think if I don't know if Christian knows him, but yeah. the rest of us, uh, <laughs> yeah, he did an excellent job with the illustrations. I highly recommend him if you need to illustrate a stagecraft book. Some great introductory stuff, but I think the the really the more interesting stuff though is the what's some of the coolest stuff, coolest most uh, the thing you're the most the proud of that you've worked on. Well, I just did a track switcher for some like it hot at the Schubert, uh, which worked out pretty well. It's which is nice. Um, no news is good news sometimes on that. I say that, and now tonight it will blow up. Um, but it's a curved deck. There's an effect where a train comes on stage, 
Okay. And like the wing space in any Broadway house, but the Schubert is just like any Broadway house that there's not a lot of wing space. And you basically have a six car train that just rolls on stage. So how they, we, well, I shouldn't give away too much of the magic, but it basically has to like curve around the stage to come on. But then when it plays, it comes straight off. So the, you go from a curved deck track into a straight track but then you have to come back on a straight track. So you have to build in a little switcher mm -hmm. and I was able to do mm -hmm. it passively so that uh, there's no, there's nothing to forget to do. Uh, so it doesn't blow up. That's cool. So that worked out nicely. Yeah. I would say it's nice when that and, happens. And who did the, so you did the technical design and then who made the scenery and the stuff? Uh, show motion. I was working oh, with cool. show motion there. So is that, and just to dig into that a little bit more, cause I'm, I'm always curious, like, you, you do so you seem to do a lot of technical design kind of freelance or you know as as needed by shows is is that a common occurrence like you're you'll tech design for show motion on the side is that through your your company i work directly with show i'm used i so i worked at show motion for well it felt like a decade <laughs> 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 a few years uh, and i haven't stopped since then um so okay. and then yeah, so they do a lot of technical design with them on different projects. Yeah. And then I do also do that sort of thing with other companies and, you know, people can reach out if they need something. Any other any other highlight effects that you you feel are like particularly wild or crazy requirements or things that you wouldn't run into maybe ever again in your career? Oh, you know, there's there's always a fun, fun gags. There's a, what is it? Um, Angels in America had this Bible that has to come rise up out of the floor, flip open and shoot a, a geyser of flames in the air. Um, <laughs> that was, most of that came from uh, England, but we did some work to actually make the trap doors and everything work and kind of be snappy and funny. And, you know, that's, that was a fun effect. Uh, eye, eye catching. Um mm -hmm. And then, you know, like the, I hesitate to say, but like the cubes on company were a lot of fun. They were a lot of work and they mm -hmm. were difficult, but it was a lot of fun to see all the cubes tracking on company because they did so many things, curves to straight to, you know, they linked together and moved together. They broke apart in all sorts of interesting ways. Um, I don't know. The... I like that you mentioned the the like a Bible coming up in, in Angels in America because I, I think I visited you at show motion when you guys were teching all the effects for that show in the shop at show motion and it was like what was it like a forty thousand pound lift just happened it was, oh yeah with, with the, there was like was the silly. lift that like it there was a lift that switched between three different holes depending yep. on so to, for economy re reasons it was cheaper to do it that way right <laughs> That's that's what people say. <laughs> I have an I have an opinion. I mean, it worked. It, don't get me wrong. So it was so Angels in America was it was originally done at the National Theater in the UK, and then it came over. So some of the stuff came over from the UK, and some of the stuff was built here. So the UK, the theater had like an orchestra pit lift or something like an orchestra pit lift built into the theater and obviously they didn't tear that out and ship it across the atlantic so we had to build all of that stuff um so we basically had to build a giant cassette and this was i don't know 40 feet by 15 feet 
so 40 feet wide, 15 foot deep, and you know, 15 feet tall or whatever it was. Um, and it had to, you had to be able to raise the whole thing up and down about a foot. And then there was a large center lift that came up. And then there was three, yeah, three individual other lifts. There was a rolling. So basically what happened is there's a slip stage that rolled back. The whole structure comes up to fill the gap. Then there's another lift that works inside of that. And I'm sure this is all going to make a ton of sense to someone listening. <laughs> but if you go I, to the I sh- saw the thing and it made no sense to me at the time. So Yeah, <laughs> if you go to the Showmotion website, I think they actually still have a video up on that. So that would be showmotion.com. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, it was a lot of steel. It was a lot of hydraulics. And then, uh, you know, and then we had a we had a lift that uh, had to service three different sunroofs. So it tracked from one sunroof to the other and then did the lift and then tracked away. And I think some people just wanted to do that. And, <laughs> and I think some people thought it was really actually cheaper. Uh, yeah, there's some pictures on the show motion website if people are interested. Think of all the control costs you save, you know, like. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Two more axes. Come on. Yeah, we did. We definitely did have to integrate like a thousand proc sensors <laughs> to make sure everything was not going to crash and kill itself. Yeah, it, it was. It was an advantage. I will <laughs> say one advantage is, is there was no room because this is all like crammed into the trap room of the uh, of the Neil Simon. So having one lift only one lift structure meant that there was like two open bays at any given moment for things to come Mm. back and forth with uh, the props and everything. So that was actually probably pretty advantageous. And the concept worked. I mean, and if you think about it, it's just like a four post lift on wheels. Like you can separate, it doesn't have to be integrated into the sunroof. It was a nice demonstration of that. Um, Yeah, it's crazy. Angel, Angels is probably also like the I, I see you know, these guys asked me some or sent me some questions. It was also probably the biggest shit show I worked on. <laughs> oh, which dovetails nicely into our next question, which was yeah. what was the worst shit show you've been a part of? Oh, you know, it's it wasn't a shit show. It's would be wrong to say that, but it was a lot of work. It was definitely a lot of work um, for everyone. For I think the creative team, for the production management team, for everybody, it was just a it was a heavy lift. But it was a well-received show. Everyone had a good time. I spent a lot of time in the trap room of the Neil Simon, so that's always fun. Um, but the good news is the crew is excellent there, in general, in New York. But in that house too, I really enjoyed my time there. So there was, you know, it was worth the work. That's good. It's cool that it was on a show that was well received because there's always something to <laughs> about, especially on the Broadway world. Like when I was at Hudson, like some of the coolest effects and things I was the most proud of were like, oh yeah, and that thing died like right yes. after three <laughs> came right back. Like, <laughs> like, yep, like, yep. Didn't make it to like, opening. Damn. No, no, that's the, it's always that is frustrating. Like, uh, I my favorite example of that is Beetlejuice and Tootsie which were two mm-hmm. musicals that were trying out at the same time. We were building them in the shop at the same time. And I did a little bit of work on Beetlejuice and I did a ton of work on Tootsie. Like I did, like mm-hmm. I was in Chicago for weeks with it and like it was well received. I'm like, Oh man, this is a great show. I'm so happy to be like, all my, like I did like a bunch of effects on that. Very proud of it. Goes to the marquee and like, eh, Less than a year. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, Beetlejuice, which did not start off hot, became a huge, it's still running. Uh, Ironically, now at the marquee where Tootsie died. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
Sometimes one has to die for the others to live. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh, which was there any other notable uh, catastrophes you've <laughs> cared to highlight for story's sake? Oh, uh, you know, so, <laughs> so many. <laughs> <laughs> I should, I should, you know, there's, you know, being safe is important. Taking the time, doing the due diligence, especially don't, you know, when you first start doing anything like this, it's like, oh, you're very careful about everything and everything's precious. Like, oh my God, the wire rope could get damaged. Like carefully lay that out on the floor and never just like rip it through a hole in the trap room or anything. And then you get into it, you get up to speed and you start moving fast with some of this stuff. But uh, it's important not to get overconfident. It's important not to um, skip steps, you know, like limit switches, everything. Like just do the due diligence part of it. Even if when you start feeling like high speed and really cool at it, that's when you're, that's when you'll like flip a platform or do something else because you didn't put bolts into it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You'll have like one really cool detail on this thing and then you'll like have forgotten something. Like, oh, end stops. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> you dump a platform off the end of a track and you're like, right, right, right. We didn't scale it yet. Damn. Damn. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. And then, you know, it's like you rush in and get something done and you're like, ah, oh, this is a really cool like hydraulic like little roll around lift for something and then you're like what's that giant pool of oil on the shop floor <laughs> <laughs> yeah i would say yeah i probably have like my biggest catastrophes always are like one or two things right is like just running full speed and having and you know missing the easy stuff because you don't have like a good checklist and then the other ones are like when i was younger and felt like I knew way more than I actually did. And like, you're like, Oh Jesus, I should have never done any of those things. <laughs> yeah. No, it's like yeah. when you, the, the more, you know, and then when you start looking back at your earlier choices, mm -hmm. yep. I have some questions for the younger me. <laughs> <laughs> some disapproving looks. Yes. It comes back to that Dunning Kruger effect. You, you don't know what you don't know until you know. Yeah. That's also a lyric at Hamilton, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I did the turntable, like, did work on them. I never saw it. <laughs> I only, I only listened to the first half in the uh, in the bathroom. That was my soundtrack when I was at the public. Nice. Oh, you, you, you were at the public, so you knew Lewis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was just working with him in Central Park the summer. Oh, on, um, he's the best. Yeah. Yeah, he's awesome. He he, and he puts up with a lot. Like, <laughs> I <laughs> decades mean, of a lot. Yeah, raccoons are all cute and all and fuzzy, but let me tell you, it's really actually unpleasant working with them in the long term. <laughs> Especially when they get lodged in your machinery, that is unfortunate oh, for everyone involved. Huh? Yeah, I have a great picture of a raccoon crawling around on a uh, HPU in the basement of the Delacorte. I'm like, <laughs> there are a lot of things that raccoon probably shouldn't be like chewing on, turning, touching, <laughs> doing. Yeah. Oh, this is Making shiny. I'll just, of. Yeah, exactly. I'll just take this pressure gauge as a as a souvenir. <laughs> yeah, I, I love the summer because uh, Carrie Zollinger, a close friend of mine, uh, is one of the ATDs at the public, and so she spent a lot pretty... of time with her. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> so as soon as like summer hits, her all her Instagram stories just start being uh, <laughs> raccoons, <laughs> like raccoons on <laughs> random things. Like, and it always starts like cute. Like, there's one in the distance, and then like a couple hours later, I'll be like, this one is much closer. Like, 
that one is inside some scenery. <laughs> this one's even that one's in a Damn bin it. full of cables. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Carrie will probably tell you uh, I was not uh, not impressed with, in particular, the uh, raccoon's uh, bathroom habits. Shall we say? <laughs> <laughs> That's not ideal. But they are cute. Those little trash pandas. They are really very cute. <laughs> And it's you know it's you know because you got the lake back there. It's like a turtle came like wandering across the the backstage crossover and stuff like that. It's a little <laughs> makes it a little more interesting. Yeah, I was always doing the the daytime scenery call, so it was like five p.m. They start getting active. I'm like, peace, I'm out. <laughs> See you guys. I'd love when they go into shows there and like whatever I see a show there. Like we always take bets on how many raccoons do you think will run across the set <laughs> this evening? Cause it's always as the sun is starting to set. And then they're like, where are we going? And like <laughs> big moments of Shakespeare drama. And then there's just like a little raccoon runs across scampers across the deck. And you're like, cool. Who's the critical nice. monologue and no one cares about what's, what's being said. Yes. <laughs> raccoon. Yeah. Uh, Shout out to Shakespeare in the park. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Here's a good one. I feel like you have a good answer for this one, Ben. What does good automation look like to you? Ooh. Uh, at the risk of using an overused phrase, it really does need to tell the story. So good automation to me fits within the show, fits really well with what the show is, uh, and doesn't feel like apart from it. So some shows, like, you know, there's a ton of just, like, pallets sliding on sliding off here's the bedroom scene here's the office scene and as long as it it's done well it works really well um but sometimes i remember we did in decent harry were you there did you see yeah 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 i did some stuff with that yeah so we we did in decent and at one point we they wanted to add a desk at the very end of the show it was still in development then and so we put a winch in the grid and we just flew in a desk and it just looked awful. I mean, because it didn't, like, for the rest of the show, there wasn't anything like it. Like, there was a there was a platform that kind of moved a little bit, but even so subtly that you didn't even really notice it. And then all of a sudden, desk flies in. And, like, here we are. We're having the seat. And it just, it just didn't fit. It didn't work. Uh, frankly, the desk also was a little shaky as it came in. Um, like we could have tuned some of that out, but like mm-hmm. it just didn't fit in any of it. Um, so Classic. like it, we, we could do it, but should we do it? Exactly. Yeah, it was. So it really has to be like part of the um, has to fit within the show to be worth doing. You shouldn't just like and now here's the automated thing that we can do. Um, so I like it when it all actually integrates like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I. I feel like when I wrote this question down, I was also thinking of things that I might have asked you. I might have heard you say with slightly more alcohol in your system. Specifically, you had very specific, you had numbers in mind for how fast things should go. And I I think (laughs) you should share that with our audience members because I think they will really appreciate that because they were wild numbers. Wild. (laughs) (laughs) Just like off the cuff, shoot shoot us. Like, how fast should, uh, how fast should a curtain come? Okay. So, I mean, Starting from the basement and working our way up, uh, lifts should be two feet per second outside of like toasters or something really specialized. Lift should be two feet per second. Deck effects should be at like three feet per second. Flying effects should be at like four feet per second. And then like the main rag or something that really needs to zip needs to be at like six feet per second. So that's 
that's would be my rule of thumb speeds. And I would also always do it in feet per second and not any other measurement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because as you were saying that, I was doing it in inches a second. And that's a lot of inches for uh, yep. six feet. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. can overspeed stuff. Yeah, yeah. it works. <laughs> we can do it. <laughs> six feet per second sounds better. It sounds less scary. <laughs> than the yeah. inches. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> but, well, it also, I mean, the reason to do it is if you think through it, like, the numbers mean more. If it, When you use numbers that are all less than 10, you can relate them a little bit better. You know, lift at two, deck affected three, flying affected four, fast things like the main rag or a tab or something where, like, you know, because the thing with a tab, you know, like for like an in one scene where everything's happening, like people need to pop out, do their little comic bit and then pop back in and then reveal everything. Like that's just how shows are built. And you can't have the curtain going. Person runs out, does their little seat, comes back. In. It doesn't it just doesn't work. So now if you can't achieve those speeds, you can't achieve it. But one of the things I hate most is like getting halfway there with something like just not being able to really make it work for a scene, like either do it well or don't do it. And sometimes you just don't have mm-hmm. the resources to do it. So don't do it. You know, that's just what it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If it's painful and dragging on, then that's, that's good for no one. Yeah. I get that. And I, I feel like so much of that also, you're, you know, you're coming from, from the perspective of like Broadway houses, I guess, well, they're, they're not huge prosceniums, but their people are right up in there. So it's got to really scream in and out to feel like it's moving fast, right? Like, Yeah, it's tra- – I mean, this is probably a comment on modern theater writing. But, you know, there's the, the – there's a lot of scenes that happen quickly. And you can't spend – if you, anytime you spend transitioning, it's just not time well spent. So mm. you either have to be really clever with it uh, or you just have to make it fly. So – those are your gotcha. choices. That's always good for us to remember as the people who just never or very rarely step foot in theaters, but frequently have to supply the gear that is making those shows happen. Let's let's <laughs> it put like, it this way. I have never I've almost never gotten the note that something was too fast. <laughs> I've just never been set told, hey, uh yeah, that deck wagon was really just way too fast. Can we slow that down? That's just that was just too much for it. It's always, can we make it faster? That's always what it is. And, right, you know, right, yeah. f- speed has its cost. You know, there's risks and, you know, generally because you have to also, you know, it's not just the top speed, it's the acceleration that you're, we're dealing with. So you need bigger mm-hmm. motors and bigger whatever. Um, so it's expensive and it's more risky, but, you know, it would be safe if in terms of physical safety, the safest show is the one that doesn't happen. Like we're always assuming some amount of risk when we start doing this stuff. So if you manage it correctly, then it's uh, it can be an appropriate and safe choice. I feel like I should start this episode with like a legal disclaimer. (laughs) (laughs) I don't stand by any of these comments I'm about to say. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is a podcast. Do not make real world design decisions based off of a podcast. (laughs) Yeah. I think I don't think I balk at uh, I don't know seventy five percent of those numbers. I think I think the lift number is totally right. I think twenty four inches a second for a lift is a little bit fast, but like feels right when you watch it on stage. Um, like I think that deck speed for thirty six inches a second is, I mean that's pretty much our standard kind of like goal for horizontal movement for sure. 
um, for most of the machines we make. Um, and then the vertical movement, I think, is probably where we end up parting some ways. But that's like, I think 48 inches a second for like a vertical MIF is is totally reasonable for like a flat or something like that. Especially like if we overspeed any of our like spotlight hoist or something like that, we can get there. Um, and it just like takes care for like load and things like that. Or, you know, trying to do multimotor moves and stuff to get those speeds. The screaming six foot a second um, main rag that probably out is more reasonable than in uh, to me, but <laughs> that's just pile a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad point either. You know, yeah, that, like fabric's tricky. It's just it is. It's beautiful, but it's tricky. And I, you know, the other thing is, and this is a whole nother discussion. This is like the next hour of the podcast. We'll be discussing counterweight assist versus dead hauling. Um, <laughs> I, and it's it's one of I kind of I wish I wish Connor's had a really slick counterweight assist uh, hoist or it's counterweight assist winch I should really say, um, but it's it's basically it's almost impossible because of there's the variation in you know counterweight like it's like yeah oh it would be great to have a winch that just clips into the T track and you know there you go but like all the arbors all of the actual rigging the head block steel it all becomes such a nightmare. But I do think that all being said, I do think counterweight assist rigging is the right way to do this stuff. Uh, and I, this is where I diverge most strongly with our European colleagues and how we should do lifting in uh, the theater. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Devoid of state funding, counterweight is the way. Yeah. I, I mean, I think uh, on Broadway, especially like, almost everything's counterweight assist, right? I mean, it's yeah. like deck winches on the grid, running arbors, like that's pretty much how like, unless there's a really specific spatial constraint where the rigging and bucking doesn't work, like that's like kind of everything is, yeah. you know, in most of my experience, like, but it's, for us, it's really hard, exactly for what you said, right? Like how to make something turnkey to make it, you know, cause there's so many different like, centers and different t-track details and like did you you know what's your really reaction get the bar? bucking what's right your, and do you have a yeah. mid rail do you right. where are you put yeah, this yeah. thing and and you know a push stick winch your deck winch is a perfectly fine i could i have one set up to do counterweight assist at san diego like you know it's perfectly you're you have winches that can do this no question you know it's just do you have a winch that's dedicated to it that could really like do it, you know, there's that uh that company out of Vegas that's now got this new like push button chain drive arbor powered arbor thing. Could you do mm -hmm. like an automated, really sexy version of that? But again, um I just don't think that's really viable as a product, especially since the other things can do it, like without too much of an issue. Yeah. Yeah, I think there is a way to do it so that it works for a lot of people that we we would we would happily do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it, yeah. it's interesting talking to our, one of our newer colleagues, uh, Bo, who's uh, been on tour for the last like dec nearly decade um, with a lot of like Broadway tours, and he talks exactly about this, like how sweet it would be to have a really easy to integrate counterweight assist, you know, winch they could just plug into your automation system. Um, and I think, I think the devil's in the details there. Um, yeah, I mean, the yeah. only the really I've thought about it on and off, and. What I think would be really cool is if you could get it into the hand line. I mean, mm -hmm. a three-quarter inch hand line is, especially a modern like multi-line two, is just got such outrageous strength relative to what it you were doing. 
and you know we do it because it's more comfortable to grip a thicker rope but you know if you could get a winch that clipped into the hand line and could just reliably motivate the scenery that way i think that would be you know is that like you know that's just three you know attention three rollers one tensioning with like a string pot like a super long string pot to clip off to the arbor or something like that like is there a way to do that where you could just slide it in and and go um it's funny that you mentioned that because that was legitimately a product proposal last year <laughs> that <laughs> easier said than done but yeah we we've we've definitely looked into that uh that that option that's yeah it sounds really cool yeah <laughs> right. it's yeah you, i don't know hard to do what yeah the running and the friction on the hand line and like what smoothness the you know the rope that is spec that is good for hand gripping isn't necessarily the good rope that you want to like run through like right tensioners and do that stuff and then you're like okay but we'll swap the hand line on it and then <laughs> you probably need a different top block and then and then you're like oh shit this this is now actually hard and well yeah not. i mean if you just swap the rope that's pretty fierce i mean that's a not a that doesn't take that much time i don't know that would be interesting yeah, yeah. i mean it's it's something that exists in the rope access world of like these, these sure, climber yeah. Um, Ronin, I think, was the, the company we were looking at that has a device sort of similar to that. Although none of these things implement positioning, which I think is... Right. Oh, I would just take that straight off the arbor. I mean, yeah, yeah, a long wire drawstring is expensive, but that's exactly, probably the... Yeah. You know, maybe you can figure out how to do that slickly. And I mean, if you're just swapping the rope, it's really just a capstan at that point that you could get yeah. it with. Right, right. Which is kind of the other way we've looked at it was like, what if we just... We have smart chain hoist. We now have pulleys that work with our fifty-five sixteenths load chain. Maybe ooh, there's ooh, do we want to jump heavy. to my uh, what what trends I like the least in scenic automation? Question. Ooh, yeah, smart chain hoist. <laughs> 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 uh, I that's it's a little bit of a personal preference, but I do am not a huge fan of smart chain hoist. Um, Mostly in terms of how people talk about them and what they want to do with it more than the actual machine itself. I think it's a fine idea to have a smart chain hoist. It makes a lot of sense for like video walls and certain applications. But in general, the problem I have with smart chain hoist is people want them at the price of a regular chain hoist, which is just not right. Really, yeah, that, that's our we issue that. too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're not unfamiliar with this. Why is this so much more than I? My push button control. I don't understand exactly. It. And then mm -hmm. 16 feet per minute is just not appropriate for like any scenic effect in the history of scenic effects. But is 100 acceptable? I'm, I'm literally doing the math. <laughs> it's like 20 inches. One, so wait, second. 100 inches per second? Uh, uh, for, no, 20, per 20 inches per second. 100 20 feet inches per, per second? Yeah. That's a little slow, but you know, for a lift, that's probably all right. All right, all right. That's 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 what that's what ours are. I was, it was a leading question. <laughs> You're gonna get the honest truth. You can always cut it out later. <laughs> well, I guess my honest opinion. I'm not the oracle of automation or anything. No, no, it's it's, it's interesting to hear from you know. I, I'd say you you probably are based on what you said earlier. You're you're advocating for the higher end of speeds, and it's good to hear that like that sounds fast to you because I think the the feedback we keep getting is. Wow, that's really fast. I don't actually need that. Can you get more load capacity? Because we we'd be happy with the programmability at thirty two feet per minute. And I'm like, yeah, but is that everyone? Is that is that how everyone feels about chain hoist? Well, and again, it's what are you doing? Like, if you want to keep yeah. an LED wall perfectly level as you're flying it out, great idea. I mean, that's a great. There's a 
new shop out of, I want to say Maryland, that's doing some interesting, like, roll out your chain motors, hook them all up and like fly them really well, very precisely. And I think that's Mm -hmm. a great application for this. But if you're trying to put it into a show, like to do Aladdin's rug or the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang car, you know, it's just not the right choice. And it's also like, people are like, oh, I know chain motors, so I'll just automate my chain motors. And it's like, have you gotten, like, there's a step there in terms of like risk assessment and like, you know, understand, you can't just throw a chain motor on it and be done with it. I mean, you can, but I'm not advocating for that. Many more layers of complexity, for sure, in synchronizing a, say, 12 two-ton chain hoist carrying an LED wall that can't get more than an eighth of an inch out. Not that we know anything about that or anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I have a feeling if I say the client, you'll just edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> we will. <laughs> we have a count going of times yeah. we've done that. And by we, I mean me. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think I think we all, yeah, the speeds can be a problem for like really fast or for like show ready cues, you know, like for some folks that are trying to move LED walls, they're like, oh, that's screaming. I don't want to have, I'd rather have fewer hoists and like more capacity. And then on the other side, when we were like trying, you know, somebody just wants a wall to move and we're like, well, we don't have winches, but we have chain hoists. And they're like, yeah, but that's too slow. We can't do it. You're like, okay, cool. So like there is, I think they're very versatile, but there is a somewhat narrow window of things that we, that it can really like excel at. Right. Um, and then there's just like, like you were saying there's that perception from the customer of like oh we're just doing chain hoist and then when you roll up with a stage hand and special cables and need to like set zeros and check scaling and like you know tech them like an automation effect all of a sudden it becomes very like hey what the heck these are supposed to just be chain motors so right. like they do and have even like before this- that the, the rental cost they're like what do you need all this shit for it's just chain hoist and you're like no, it's not just chain hoist. It's they're better than the bumps you, you're used to. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Putting variable speed chain hoist into something, and then you're like trying to level something, and then you know the guy, some guy on the thing, she's like, "Just give me another bump," and you're like, "I, you could say, give me a sixteenth, and I can give you that." <laughs> <laughs> I see a tape measure on your belt. Please use it. Yeah, I, I mean, and that's actually, and that's a great point between like rigging and like automation it's like you know one of the hardest things to do with an automation system in my experience is like the bump (laughs) you know like (laughs) the really tiny move i mean you know to to nail that as a it's like no just give me the measurement that's what the all of this is for yes i'll give you a nice a cell and a d cell it'll be just (laughs) it'll be great (laughs) give me a heavy bump you're like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I think that's an eighth. It's, yeah, it's like, I'm just going to back it off a foot and come into where you want me to be. No, no, no. Just give it a bump. We're almost there. It's like, all right. Okay. Cool. Sure. Sure. However you want. On the chain hoist, the smart chain hoist, I am a late uh, adopter. I think more folks at the shop were more excited about them sooner than I was, uh, admittedly. And I have... They have tainted me in some way. Um, <laughs> they have. Uh, I was the. I was definitely on the outside looking in, being like, I don't know, I don't know. And then, like through trial and error, and like really beating on them, like we have been able to like really get some better motion out of them, especially for like non typical like chain lifting effects, which is is cool. Um, and at the moment, 
it's very hard to get any motor. And so if someone says, <laughs> like, like, oh, I would God, like, yeah. I would place an order on a chain hoist and a motor from SCW and whichever one shows up is what we'll use to do that. Effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awful. <laughs> <sighs> Supply chain. It's led to some very interesting solutions. I did a, uh, I did a very large deck unit that probably would in a normal supply world would have just been a three eighths, you know, be a 10 horsepower winch and a three eighths rope, but just wasn't available. So it ended up being a double purchase dog with quarter inch rope, uh, <laughs> which is a, just an interesting design challenge. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, the one hand of like, I, in, you know, five years ago, I would have, no one would have ever thought this was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Were you, you putting dull- pulleys on the dog? Yep. Yep. It's a little nice. crawler dog with pulleys and everything. That's, but you know, that's when, good. when when you have to use what's on the shelf, you that's what you do. Yeah, yeah. I can't tell you how many products I've redesigned for other manufacturers' motors. It's, yeah, I wish I could stop doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're getting really fast at it, though. Yeah. <sighs> how many bids have come in recently where you're like, that should be a you know a single ten horsepower motor, and you're like, how about two fives? <laughs> or <laughs> which that's got to be talking. That's gonna yeah. be. Not not a thing. Yeah. Which voltage drive and what size motor? <laughs> I don't know. Whichever ones we can get. I guess that's that's a good trend we don't like in scenic automation is working with the parts you have you can get. That yeah. it, could could that just stop? Yeah. It does reveal how spoiled we were. Where it's like, what do you mean? I can't get the SEW motor. I have to get it unpainted in order to have it in three days. What ridiculousness is this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were very spoiled with that because, like, you know, oh, you know, we had three or four different machines that all had like slightly different flavors of five horsepower SEW motors with roughly a twenty to one, like on every single K-series, one of them. K-series hollow bore, but not quite the same. Right, yeah, like. Slightly different gearbox, slightly different gearbox here, different shaft here, snuggler in the floor pocket, you know, like just all slightly different kinds of tweaks. And then now we're yeah, like, conduit box oh. with different orientations. And yeah, now you're, now you're spinning a lot of uh, motor bodies, I bet. <laughs> I mean, we've redesigned. No, we're just redesigning all of them. All yeah, time. we're oh, redesigning machines. winches so that we can use the same five horsepower gear motor for all of them, essentially. Like, this well, is fun. the five horsepower. This will, and then whenever we choose, you know, if we have a two horse or whatever we do, we're just like go down that path so that we can like buy with a little more quantity and have you know kind of like pre-buy. Whereas before we just like, oh, we need a motor, let's order it. It'll be here. yeah. No, it's it's that's always such an interesting choice with um with all of the components we do. Like if you're doing hydraulic hose, what sizes do you skip? Like. You know, no five eighths hoses. So, <laughs> I, I have a particular love of oil. So, uh, mm. but like you know, how you can like narrow in on a specific set of uh, sizes of components. Like you know, I you design. I remember I did. We had one point we had three different effects all running on this with the same cylinder size, but some of them like we had to put stop internal stop tubes on, and some of them external stop tubes. But it was worth it because it meant we had to keep like one or two cylinders as spares rather than like six different sizes of cylinders as spares on the shelf, you know, mm-hmm. like the stop tube isn't going to fail. So you don't need a lot of those. You just need the cylinder and be able to pull it apart. And 
narrowing your range of components. Like, don't ever buy a seven and a half horsepower motor. You know, go from five to ten. That helps save a bunch of you know shelf space, which is an important consideration, especially for you all with your uh, your whole business model. Yeah, it's it's funny that motors have gotten. They're still the timelines are a little bit ridiculous. Still kind of ridiculous compared to what we were at, but like we can reliably get them now. Like we know what the, like if I place the order, it's way longer than I want it to be, but we can get it <laughs> drives. It's, I mean, Oh, Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> it's who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, has chip manufacturers been in the news lately? Has that been a thing? <laughs> <laughs> I hear they're nailing it. Well, looking at, um, we know what you like and don't like. Uh, what do you? Where do you see uh, scenic automation heading in the next ten years? What's the thing that you think is like probably that next step, like trending? Uh, it's a good question. Um, it feels like a lot of the shops that I've worked with I've, are seeing more of the um, the user experience sort of pop up events. I don't know if anyone's done one of those. I like Stranger Things was like three different shops I worked with were all building something for stranger things at one point, which was, you know, and it was just like a user, like at a convention center or comic con or whatever, sort of like you walk in and it's all stranger things. Um, mm-hmm. So that kind of work. Experimental marketing. Yeah, exactly. Marketing, yeah. That, um, yeah, you know, the terms, <laughs> but integrating, uh, you know, a lot of scene shops are building that stuff and eventually someone's going to get the idea of like integrating scenic automation into that. But it's such a different, that's really like amusement park and themed entertainment work rather than scenic automation work and dealing with that kind of, uh, you know, theme park's not going to be particularly nimble on doing a pop-up event. Um, But, you know, if you're able to get get the technology to work, but you have such a challenge with having a general public as the, user rather than like trained professionals you know there's one of the you know like we when you're like working with the standards writing committees and all that stuff it's like like oh we're just you know the people are trained that's why they're not going to get hit by the scenery and like your normal safety professional your normal like osha inspectors like train like we we want to avoid training that's just not how that works like that's just not an appropriate solution and i agree with them in a factory but on Mm -hmm, stage i mean these people are literally for six weeks training where they're going to step. Like it's, it's the blocking is like so integral that like we have to make it work for what we do, but the general public is not going to participate or be as well behaved as like an actor who's been trained, believe it or not. Right. You know, as much as some people might have is on fifth Ave. That's, that's a little harder to, to control who's coming and going with the effect. So, yeah, I mean, like we have that like hard and fast of like, if you're the one re- pressing the button, you need to be sitting near the e-stop. And you're like, yeah, but what if you're just a guy that came in to see a funny thing? Right. And now, you know, people off the street are used to like pressing buttons and touch screens and things like that and like interacting with these kind of like little worlds. And you're like, OK, cool. So like now how do we protect that? How do we make right. sure that's completely foolproof? and user safe to like general audience. Right. And, yeah. and, and, you know, coming from like the theatrical background, you know, show motion years ago did a job for a theme park. This was before my time, but it was massive doors that opened 
for uh, intellectual property uh, that everyone would recognize, but whose name I'm not going to use. Uh, and like, what was interesting, the stories about that was, normally we're building an automation system for an operator, like for a, for a professional stagehand operator. In this case, you need to build an operating system for a 16-year-old kid in Florida or California that is going to come and operate this thing and needs to be able to do it flawlessly with like one laminated page with like size 24 font that tells them what to do. Like that's just such mm -hmm. a different approach than what we're used to. Yeah, it's, it's just totally different. <laughs> yeah, uh, Chuck Adamanis at Hudson always used to like when we were talking about operator systems and things like that, like he had reference manuals from like the the theme park world of just like how to orient buttons and like how to differentiate button shapes and the way that you like, you know, what is immediately like, if I sit down on this, how can, how does a person at any scale, like start interacting with this and know what does what like, Oh, this button's raised. That's interesting. And it's slightly offset from the other ones. Hmm. Like when you look at it, it doesn't make any sense because there's kind of shit everywhere, but then you're right. like, yeah, but like if you were running your hand on this thing, you would see that that one's to the right and it's raised. So that might be the stop or like, you know, like there's all these like weird little psychologies of how to make those things work that the theme park world is like just figured out. Yeah. <laughs> <And us> is, <laughs> <laughs> like theater folk are like, wait, what? What's going on? Yeah. Oh. I mean, you know, the the what was it? The three mile island disaster in in large part was the nuclear power plant in Pennsylvania that like almost melted down, the disaster was attributed to like, the control room was just not well designed and was like difficult to understand what was going on and use. And like, those are professional operators. Like it, it matters. It mm -hmm. matters how yeah. you arrange this stuff and put the information and what you call things and, you know, to avoid major instances. I think those are all great points. Uh, going down our list, do you have any sage wisdom, any advice for uh, aspiring theater folks, technicians, technical managers, technical designers, anything, uh, someone looking to get into doing what you're doing? Sure. I've actually collected a lot of this advice into a book that is now available for sale <laughs> <laughs> at modernstagecraft.com. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I did put a lot of tips and tricks into a book. So if anyone's interested, I do, I will plug it again, because why not? Um, that I did try to get the full range of, of there's something in there for everybody. Uh, you know, it goes from like screwing a chip brush onto the back of a door to keep it from, you know, opening on, on stage to using, uh, you know, Quartix in order to figure out, you know, if you could, how to fit a rectangle inside a rectangle, which is actually a fascinating, uh, mathematical exercise, but perhaps a little more in depth. Like, I, you know, that last little bit in there, like, I don't think anyone's ever actually created the calculator that I wrote a, uh, the instructions for, but maybe one day someone will take on the challenge. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's a, a whole range of stuff that goes from the obvious to like, who on earth would ever think to put this in a book? <laughs> what's your What's your favorite tip or trick out of all of them? Well, I'm very fond of the rectangle and the rectangle calculator. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, I'm serious. It's, uh, I found the salute. It was just one of those things, like how big of a rectangle you get, you have a doorway, right? And you want to fit a flat through that doorway. Like, and you know, your flat's going to be inch and a half tube steel with like three eighths plywood on it. Right. So you've got a one and seven eighths 
thick thing? What's the widest flat that you can fit through a given doorway? And it's like you end up drawing the doorway in AutoCAD or whatever your CAD program of choice is and just like playing and rotating and playing and rotating until you get something that'll fit, right? But there is actually a mathematical solution to it. Um, but it, it, it involves fifth order polynomials. Uh, and it's a, and it's just, it's a hoot to actually figure it out. And I found the solution in like a engineering textbook from like, I, I want to say 1897. Um, and this <laughs> but is, does your, does your formula include clearance? <laughs> well, that's up to the user. You have to pick your rectangle <laughs> size. So if you, your doorway, if you add your clearance to the doorway, like I want to get it through with a quarter inch of air, that's your door size. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Or, or the, if you want to do it with a dead blow, then don't exactly, add exactly. Yeah, yeah. That was big Harvard and Yale energy right there. <laughs> oh, oh. You, you think people are smart because they go to Yale, but the number of flats I sawed, sawed in half to fit through a door to <laughs> stitch back together would well, it, it, prove it otherwise. Fair, it happens. It fair. It fairness to all of those people. The loading conditions at the ye old university theater are just literally insane Interesting. it's just ridiculous <laughs> loading all of the steel in stick by stick through a basement window is just yeah awesome you gotta just know you gotta know the smallest hole you gotta know that one yeah I, you you were because when we were in school you had there was like the sheet that everyone wanted which was like <laughs> ben clark's list of this of the, the doors you have to go through to load into any given space yeah, I would have thought every technical director would create such a list. <laughs> well, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Why would I recreate something that already exists? Yeah. You you were there a year before me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did eventually give it I did create a folder on the server with all the stuff I collected over the years. So I'm told it's still there. So hopefully it's still useful for folks. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time because you've been so nice to join us. But I do have one final and very important question. Uh, to ask, and that is, so you have a four-post lift, <laughs> and you have the four corners. How do you name them? I'm fascinated as to what system someone came up with. <laughs> uh, my preference was always to use stage directions in labeling. Mm -hmm. uh, like, so upstage left downstage left, upstage right, downstage right would be my inclination for four posts. Mm -hmm. Now, if they were, for whatever reason, like on the bias at a 45, I'd probably just say upstage, downstage, stage left, and stage right. But as much yeah. as possible, I don't want to have to like look at a another... When I ha find the piece of information, the label on the part, I don't want to have to look for another piece of information to know what to do with it, is generally yeah. my approach. But if you had to attach an axis number to upstage left, upstage right, downstage left, downstage right, would you go that way? Would you start? Would you go upstage, uh, stage left to stage right, and then upstage, and then down? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, wait, well, which one, one would be first? Oh, like, you have to what give would a be number. first? Yeah, what would be second? And then probably most importantly, what would be third? <laughs> Because or back and forth? <laughs> yeah. Are we zigzaggy? Yeah. Or are we going around? Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. Clockwise, counterclockwise. If you, do uh, you make a bold choice on two and just go crazy. So I have a saying, which is "When in doubt, stage left." So anytime mm -hmm. you know you start working on anything, you know sometimes there's an arbitrary choice. Is like, 
which wall do you start drawing first or which whatever, mm -hmm. what, you know? And so I always say when in doubt, stage left. So I would always start stage left and I would almost certainly start downstage because upstage is sort of can keep going forever, right? Downstage mm -hmm. is sort of like the hard limit of the theater. Uh, so I would start downstage left, then probably upstage left, then probably upstage right, and then probably downstage right. If I was, if if you're mm -hmm. talking about you're talking about four smart chain motors on a mm -hmm. uh, yeah. on a four post four left, left. Yeah. yeah, I would mm -hmm. probably want axis two and three kind of next to each other. So if I had to do the leveling adjustment, upstage to downstage, that it would be easy for me to grab them. But mm -hmm. that's just because then I, you know, when I'm leveling it, I could then have. Left is one and two, so that's easy. Right is three and four, that's easy. The upstage is two and three, they're right next to each other. The only one that's a little weird is one and four, uh, but there you go. In theory though, I would only ever need to adjust one side because I can either go up or down and the back side up or down. So that's probably would be my choice. Practically, no. that's how it works, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like this. It's a it's a real Rorschach test, this one. <laughs> what what uh, what are the other theories? Uh the one that's wrong. <laughs> oh patent. Which one wrong. is it? At the shop there was no um I mean, I don't know. It went just totally in the middle of the shop. There's it was no... just in the middle of the shop floor. And yeah. so we don't have a clear downstage. Like, far and then they went zigzag, but then Gareth really like clockwise, but then <laughs> Then there was like access number, and then someone, for, yeah. Then there was like numbers. some colors were introduced. Uh, yeah. <laughs> by the end, you're like, okay, stagehand one has hoist 16, number six one, brown, blue. Yeah. <laughs> and we got like everyone in the shop to come by, like, hey just going in blind what would it be and i think i mean <laughs> some people had to have overlap but they were all labeling all different. labeling by committee here <laughs> well yeah. and then the because what was it we asked it on one of the other episodes and somebody wrote in and said like u.s geography like the map of the u.s they named it by states oh that was good mm -hmm. yeah 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 oh yeah and then and then the lift that it did go to steppenwolf and they like largely uh will label by like cardinal directions of like northeast southwest because of the way that mm -hmm. the theater is situated so like it's in the round that yeah also and black boxes you often have yeah. to go that way yeah and so then there was like a whole other element of like yeah so labeling is tricky <laughs> <laughs> yeah the english like to use people's names <laughs> well i think that's that's it from us thank you for all your time this has yeah, been great. <laughs> oh, I will plug. I do. I should mention. I do have a uh, a wrench that I've designed that I've been working on, uh, which might might make an appearance on Modern Stagecraft if people are interested in rigging and tools. Uh, so you might want to keep. It's in beta testing right now, which means I send it to some people I know who break things, and uh, <laughs> if it works out, uh, it might make an appearance. So I'll just tease that. Mm, that's oh, exciting. That's... That's very exciting. That, that just very cool. We love wrenches and breaking <laughs> stuff. <laughs> and rigging. It's, it's a perfect combination. Perfect yeah. storm. <laughs> well, I look forward to hearing uh, who else you get on the podcast. It's a, it's a great uh, resource, I will say. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. You're a great Thanks. resource. <laughs> oh, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> we should do it again sometime.
Maybe when next yeah, time I'm in sure. Rhode Island. Yeah, yeah definitely. Come hang out. Definitely. We got beer. Decent breweries out there. Actually, San Diego's not bad for breweries, I got to say. Nah, I twist my arm. I'll come out. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll get Mike Sue down from uh, L.A. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I was just bugging him about I'll be out there. In oh, January. and Mike Wade was just out here. He could tell you. I just got a drink yeah. on him. Oh, oh nice. nice. Wait, what was that for? for he was in town for training. the Old Globe. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a hot second ago. I, he's been in. He's been in so many fires recently. I, I <laughs> yeah. didn't remember which yeah. one. Yeah, he's done a lot of traveling. <laughs> yeah, I imagine whatever the next circuit and gear podcast will be is just like Mike's corner of sadness, and we'll just bang <laughs> through <laughs> across the country. Yeah, you're not familiar with those episodes. It is, <laughs> it is really. It is a fun experience being the guy on the other end of the phone when there's a problem. It's really probably my fun. least favorite part of the job. Yeah, this word fun, I don't think <laughs> you know what it means. Clearly not. I've spent my entire life working in the theater. <laughs> I feel like you were the you you introduced me to the term uh, machines eating themselves. Now, be forever forever grateful for that. It is. Yeah. Yeah, it's the curse of winches, you know. There's always an end. Uh, I, that's one reason to love hydraulics, you know. That cylinder mm-hmm. can go all the way and it'll be fine. Other things might not be, but the cylinder can stand out. <laughs> I don't know. We just got a. We just are going to get a cylinder that tore itself to pieces. Like, no, no, no. The cylinder was fine. Actually, he's he's correct here t- technically. Well, yeah, and the rest but of it, on yeah. the the weldman, the, the what it's attached to, less so. <laughs> yeah. And it, it is a it is a fun fact that like Hannah or whoever will will totally sell you a cylinder that cannot cannot work because of how you know slender it is as a column in the push. It'll be fine and pull, but like you could totally buy a cylinder and they'll be happy to sell you one that just will just fold in half the moment you try to lift something. <laughs> <laughs> so you do have to pay attention to that. But details. Yeah, you know. <laughs> this is why we try not to do hydraulics. Well, yeah, uh, that's all I can. Is try to not do hydraulics. <laughs> that's such a that's it breaks my heart to hear that. I mean, with the the you, the power density is just so. I mean, and it's quiet. Like it's everything you want in an actuator. You know, it's incredibly powerful, very compact, and it's quiet as hell. If you move, if you get the pump far enough away, and you can, like, you just it's just the best for all of what we do, and you know dozens of shows without like more, the only drop of oil that spilled was when we were making our breaking fittings. Like it ran without an issue for the whole time. Like, you know, it's, it is a really powerful and unfortunately less used technology. So here's a plug for hydraulics. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, it was after the sign off. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> I, f- I feel like, I feel like some technicians are just like, They've had a bad experience and they're just never going to get back to it. <laughs> no. Yeah. I don't know. My time at Hudson had a lot of hydraulics in it and it, yeah. Just didn't no. do it for you? No. I mean, yeah, like just getting the HPU far enough and then you've got long lines of like making sure you have the right hoses so that you don't have like all this like squishy kind of like, you know, emotions like uh, profiles and like accounting for it just was always a pain in the ass. It was always just like kind of wobbly not very precise lots of power the power is always insane like that nothing stops them they don't fault for not having enough power ever but 
just the, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, it's cylinders. And, and I think here, like, the, our, our challenge is, like, A, we don't have the skill set because we just don't do it that frequently. B, we, don't, we can't get it quickly because we don't have it, and it's not faster than I get anything else. And then C, like, on the occasions when you absolutely need it and someone comes to us, we got our friend Adrian at Stage Machines next door, and that is his bread and butter. So it's like, it's true. It's like, oh, if you really need hydraulics, like, yeah, Adrian's got you. He's got shit tons of lifts, yeah, shit tons of HPs, and we're not gonna be able to deliver faster, and probably not the price point that you're considering hydraulics at. Right. Yeah. It is like from us, like back to the stocking thing of like we can buy a you know pallet full of five horsepower stage and uh, five horsepower motors and turn them into a whole sea of different strokes capacities speeds you know all lots of different things and then like hydraulics it's like uh you know stroke length, like all of the cylinders themselves and everything is so specific that it ends up sucking up like design time and becomes like a purchasing and re- like sourcing exercise every time we go to do it yeah so, like, it's a it's it a just... product when in your world of making products rather than like effects for a show it doesn't but like you know there's being able to limit the travel so effectively like you know mm-hmm. In terms of machines eating themselves, which I guess is what started us on all of this, like <laughs> doing lifts with a with a cylinder is just so nice because you just know you're never going to crash it. You know, like you could jam something in there, something else can happen, but like you know, because like over travel is always such an issue. I mean, that's probably like the number one lesson to teach relatively new, young, dumb. I'm doing automation kind of myself. 10 years ago, whatever is like, you know, that limit shouldn't be set with the ear of the dog, a quarter inch from the end of the deck track, especially when you're like, like at 5%, like very carefully positioning it. Like that's, you know, your mm-hmm. limit is inches away from that. That's where you should be setting it. Not where you've put I'm it. I'm sure we'll be fine at full speed. Yeah. It, well, you know, yeah. the dog might be the wire rope. Won't be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is true. But, we get that know. with traveler tracks all the time of yeah. like, that's the end of the wall, and that's where the panel is. Why can't I go any further? And you're like, well, if you want it to stop before the end of before the wall, right? We need, we need some yeah. some space. We need some room, especially if you want to in- implement ultimates. But that's a whole other conversation. Um, but with but oh, with hot cylinders that we don't. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I probably I probably <laughs> shouldn't get on the record with an opinion there. <laughs> Horizontal ultimate limits. How do you feel? <laughs> How do you feel? I think they definitely do exist. <laughs> it is <laughs> absolutely possible to implement those. <laughs> but again, with yeah. the cylinder, the cylinder itself can be your limit, and that's always nice. And you know, and to the you know, I will. I, some shops have just had more experience than other shops in terms of implementing this stuff. And to your point, if like, do you go to you know, with Adrian, you have another option. Like some places just do certain aspects or focus more on certain aspects. So, you know, different shops are going to have different experiences. And that's important to know. Like, don't force a shop if you're trying to bid out a show to do something they're not used to, you know? Have them, have them solve the problem the way they like to solve it, within reason. But yeah, I did see the uh, roller chain uh, belt question. I was wondering how everyone there feels about that. I'm no, probably... But we uh, want to hear, we want to hear what you say first. <laughs> I, I happen to be a big fan of uh, Brecoflex there in New Jersey. Um, that's uh, that's what I would say. I, I like if I can use a belt, I'll use a belt. Okay, and then I'll, let me add a, a little wrinkle to it. Uh, lifting lateral 
both. Oh. <laughs> Have you heard of wire rope? It's <laughs> great stuff. I think I know wire you rope. You can that. do out of plane bending really easily, which uh, neither of those other products are particularly great at. Um, yeah, I mean, no, lifting with belts. Yeah, it's been done. Same thing with chains. I think belts are quieter yeah. and. Uh, have some advantages especially and like it used to be strength and stretch were an issue but with the modern constructions it's just not so they even have the yeah. new spliceable belts which has solved a lot of problems um you know historically yeah. speaking so yeah if i can use a belt i'll use it because like chain is loud i mean it's robust and it's known and like stagehands can deal with it and like like if i'm doing a deck win sure among other things i know the folks in the theater are going to be able to deal with it but uh if I really want to do a slick little machine, I'm going to look at, I'm going to look for a belt solution. I, I probably go the way of, uh, vertical lifting. I'd rather go chain. It's positively engaged. You're not going to skip, skip the chain. It's strong. The speeds, like we were talking about earlier, aren't as massive, especially like a lift with chain is going to be really, really decent. And especially if it's in the pit, like you often don't hear those machines much anyways. Um, right. And then lateral moves belt is pretty badass because like you can fucking ratchet them up and you don't have to worry about the, you know, like I think like I think if I had my druthers, I'd go chain for the lift and belt for the sunroof. Like those kind I, of like I, I will those. I will say with really long runs of belt, I have seen the sag engage the teeth. And that's always mm-hmm. a sad day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> short runs, thing. short runs with the belt. You yeah, and that's and that's and that's, yeah. the, and that's the reality too. Is like, look at the price point, and like, holy cow, chain is like cheap. Um, yeah, but like you know, it's like doing toasters or whatever. Belts where I would head with that um, over yeah. chain. Uh, if you need fast, like yeah. you do need fast. If you need they, fast and, they, and quiet. Speed and they do speed and quiet. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a distinct noise of the the belt pop in a lifting application that once you've experienced it, you're like, ooh, never want to hear that again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, quiet. I mean, quiet and fast is basically is always what people are asking for. No one's ever asked for a loud machine because they have sound designers for that, you know. So, right. But if they see it drop once, they're not going to want the machine regardless <laughs> of what you're lifting it with. <laughs> well, that's generally true. We're trying not to ever drop a load. I mean, that should go without saying, I hope. But but choice of lifting medium can make a chance. That, I mean, something I would never subject anyone to. Have you guys ever seen the the uh, sink belt stuff? It it can actually do the out of plane multi axis bending. So it's like it's it's like a helical like it's a belt with that's got like a carbon core. Or maybe sometimes they do steel cores, and then it's got a profile on it, so you can actually do like. Oh, does it? It looks like uh, like triangular kind of like conical lengths. Of plastic yeah, there's, di- there's there's different profiles. That's one of them, but that shit's real cool. But I've you know unobtainium and very expensive. Yeah, well, that's the thing. And like, and the price of wire rope is like ten cents a foot. <laughs> yeah, um, right. But you gotta also be careful that you're getting it from a reputable source. That's the other thing. Like, we spend all this time talking about all this stuff, and then it's like all of your bolts and wire rope are coming from China. Like, what are you? You gotta make <laughs> some choices here. <laughs> yeah. Maybe just a little more steel is not a bad thing. There was some, I forget what show it was when I was at Hudson still that like they wanted to source all their own wire rope because our price was too high. And then they used all Chinese wire rope and their shit was just bird caging like crazy and like halfway into 
commissioning, like not even into tech. It was all fucked. And then we had to like drop ship and expedite an ass ton of wire rope from like our regular sources. And it was yeah. just like, that did not go your way on that one. Like <laughs> it is, it is definitely one of those components where it's like, you really need to have a good relationship with a reliable supplier to have confidence in it. Cause you can get domestic wire rope. I remember Clancy did this job for the U S air force Academy. And they're like, the job was three times the cost that it normally would be because all the wire rope had to be domestic, but because of the U S military contract part of it, but you know, and the flip side, what are you doing with it? Like if it's a single failure is going to be a bad day for like a very important person, probably mm-hmm. worth it. Well, it's all classified. So you don't know what they're doing with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly i think it, it's like it's like soft goods in a lecture hall <laughs> it's, something, it's something really depressingly uh it has nothing to do with fighter jets <laughs> yeah well you already signed off but i just kept talking so apologies for that uh fun. <laughs> yeah, this is great i mean this is why we love doing the podcast it's like oh we just gonna talk about some shit we all like and like you know poke holes and ideas and talk about fun stuff so that's and i you know drink some beers at the same time well it's a little early for me out here but yeah um i'd be interested in what products you guys all want to design and develop oh yeah that's true i did ask do you have any questions if you had any questions for us if that interested you yeah, yeah I mean, or product proposals yeah i'd like to know what you're looking for what your people are asking for out there well what they're asking for yeah <laughs> yeah no but that's kind of a great time to ask that question just as uh that's what we've been thinking about for going to the our uh, product summit for next year our new products it's like mid-january so if you want to if you want to plant a seed of a, an idea now is the time but i think some of the like highlights of at least things that i've seen proposed yeah so far you want to talk about yours i'll talk about mine yeah was i'm uh a new control device the that would live on the machine that would be a place to store things like position scale load scale name ip address tuning values and so then when you plug it into a stagehand it would just read all that information in and just be correct and you wouldn't have to think about it kind of a uh, just a different place to store the information about the machine right. that lives with the machine so when you plug in a stagehand it already knows it's a push stick that can do 36 inches a second that can that needs a proportional gain of four and an integral of one and can you use you know. any of the existing conductors that you have to transmit that so you don't have to run a new cable yes yes <laughs> i have been saving these two I've been fighting the hardest to keep <laughs> these two open in the signal cable to be able to do this. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. That's a great idea. So that's that's the one that I've been that I have proposed so far. But then Harry, I think you proposed one, two on the machine side. Two so, so far. far. Yeah. Well, you have the push stick v. Oh yeah. The first the first one was two push stick v three, yeah. which yeah, which kind of go along with what Cody was talking about earlier about unifying across PT components, gear motor, bearings, drum, yada, yada. So we're, that's more of a us thing, but more just like sharing, sharing componentry so we can deliver faster. We're going to start hopefully. Bigger stop orders. <laughs> yeah. Start ordering like tens and twenties of gear motors and bearings and whatnot. So we can 
just have that sitting on the shelf and have more stock and hopefully mitigate if you know supply chain continues to be as it is um and then the other thing was getting into them a re another crack at oh, mini machines yeah um and it's a little tbd what this turns into if it happens um but probably starting in the order of three or four new machines in the either one or two horsepower range that kind of similar form factor or like applications to what we typically do but with ac induction gear motors not not doing the servo stuff like we've done in the past um, and why moving away from that cost or availability cost effectiveness yeah so so the idea is we do the same thing we're trying to do with the five horsepower gear motors of you know stockpiling around a single unified gear motor and bearings and shafting and whatnot and Drum, uh yeah. kind of having a more cost effective uh device that either tbd whether it's like pairing with like the the high duty end of the five horsepower range or like something that pairs with the currently not matched with any of our product offerings one horsepower stage and apprentice um so that's a, a little you know what what that actually is like probably probably minimally a winch probably a revolver mini would be two of the ones that off the, the bat and other options are like a rot a mini rotator a traveler track machine, a trolley, a uh, tiny hoist. That one's probably a little more expensive. Uh, you know, you name it, whatever mini machine machine you can think of uh, considered a roll drop, uh, whatever. Um, but yeah, and also the idea of like a modular platform. So like probably like some base bracketry and gear motor and shafting. And then you can bolt on or add different widgets to do different things so you could do you know it could be a winch for this show and it could be a roll drop for the next show or mm. a re mini revolver for the next show with these various add-on kits which hopefully are at a reasonable price point so it's not like you know you could get three different machine options for all in like you know 10 to 12k as opposed to you know our typical like kind of 20k price point for a five horse machine it's, it's the hope yeah it's the um, same motor it would be kind of slick to be able to just like have it framed and bolt onto a different you know componentry yeah yeah exactly and we, we've been doing a lot more recently with like uh form steel parts and i think that's been pretty successful oh my god just getting a press break for the win down. yeah because you yeah. still you still avoid welding at all costs right like that's yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think we're fine with like tacking stuff where it's just like, you know, if you have, we have some bent parts that we're working on new stuff where it's just like, yeah, it's bent to fold back on itself and then we're just tacking it. So it's like a gusset that stays in place. But for the most part, I think, yeah, not like Weldman's trying to stay away from Big, like what the floor pocket is where it's like, yeah, yeah a lot of t slot and tab things that like require actual checking of dimensions. <laughs> so idiot, idiot proof welds that prevent things from like moving. Warp. Yeah. Yeah. Have you looked at any like, integrated into truss uh machinery i know coming from hudson cody you probably uh have seen way too much of that in your life from chuck's uh jaunts into that but i mean yeah i think we've not thought about like a you know a truss winch or like a you know have it be in a stick of truss um but tried to optimize i mean especially like the thing harriet was working on last was like the zero fleet sled for the spot line which is like being designed with trust being trust conscious of like having a ways to bolt and mount to trust readily like 
the old spotline kind of world of like pipes and things so you could cheeseboro and things was okay because it was like in the pipe world but the centers weren't right anyways so then you end up with like some like pipe amalgamation to get you there so then like like there's unistrut and brackets and weird shenanigans you're like what what if we just put the whole pattern that like lines up with 12 inch box truss and 18 and a half inch box truss and mod truss and mm-hmm. whether you're doing the six inch or the 12 inch whatever like it's all just there yeah, yeah. it's such a is the hope yeah. it's such a powerful like it's weird i mean getting into the weeds here but it's like that that whole center for 12 inch and 20.5 inch truss it's like just the holy grail of whole patterns in the entertainment <laughs> industry <laughs> yeah right but then it's like it it doesn't always work with like okay but if you got this thing that's larger than the profile of it, like art, can you hang over on this side and that side? Maybe not. Maybe for this application, you really need your tight centers or you need to go 90 degrees and fucking fit it in there. Or yeah, I don't know. There's no one size fits all. Yeah. One of my, I mean, Harry and I arrived at two of the same product proposals, totally independent of each other, which was like the push stick V 2.5 or V three or whatever, which is just like essentially like the trail end of, the last round of updates and then i think ours is slightly different but i think the two horsepower motor is probably the thing that i'm like i designed a fuck ton of machines at hudson with a two horsepower induction motor like to pull for horizontal moves and like that kind of like i mean everyone has their version of it but that like hudson mini winch like little one that's essentially like a 12 by 12 by three and a half four foot yeah. cube of like power like that shit sits on a truss great like yeah. that really probably is what wants the pushback mini wants to be. And then you're like, and then for like hoisting like a spotline mini with a two horsepower motor with an aided strum, like is actually, you know, Oh, do you want to do a chandelier or something like that? And it goes yeah. back to our regular stage hand or, you know, so you don't need like some special spark machine. Like there's something kind of cool in there. And then for the turntable, like a two horsepower motor, like, it's not quite the cap, but it's pretty close. Like on the five horsepower version of the revolver, you lose to friction before you hit the capacity of the horsepower anyways. So like, right. I think there's some economy, especially if we like lean into two horsepower, like that. We and that's like bring our prices too. You could do, you could do four ones or you could do two twos or right, yeah, three t- twos tables. probably light duty. But no, because two, we've two already made a great a f- for a turntable. Yeah, and we've already done a few of these like boxes where we're like we've in the last year and a half we've done a ton of multi multi motor effects, and so I think we're pretty pretty good on that. Better at that. Yeah, like one drive, one drive, multiple motors. So yeah, definitely like trying to flesh that out into like here's how we do that now. Yeah, yeah. Show Motion's always been a big fan of uh, linking. Yeah, especially for turntables where like you're just like ganging them along and. You're yeah. already looking for an out, outside encoding solution anyway, so it's not even like a winch or something. Right. Turtles. Things where the where the mechanical synchronization is just like there, ready for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I've got Stagehand, Stagehand 5, I think is it's actively being worked on, so it's not totally a new proposal, but there's... <laughs> Can we just call them drives? <laughs> no. <laughs> there's this whole generation like, of people who like don't like like i'm like oh we gotta put this like with the drive rack and they're like what what are you talking about i'm like the drives all the drives it's like oh the stage hands and i'm like ah, ah. <laughs> they're, they're just motor drives there's <laughs> drives calling, in there stop calling it velcro it's hook and loop 
<laughs> we love to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Got him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff there. I mean, we alluded to earlier, but like the next version of Stagehand is going to have split SLD cell. Yay. Um, and a new Welcome to controller. 1994. Like we said. <laughs> Late 90s, early 2000s technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and other cool features that are happening in the back end and lots of, you know, exciting things there, but like a new screen. And then also and... setting it up for new features to add to other things, but like building the platform where it's now more capable for many more things. Yeah. I, I will say in general, the Connors has done a nice job with making the system easy to is user friendly. I've had I've had two grad students, both who did their first like automation on a show this semester, mm-hmm. and both of them did were able to do it very well with just stepping through the available resources and everything. And I mean like we like set it up in the shop last year and they we had like paper projects with uh, Spike Mark software Mm -hmm. and so like they were prepared for it but like actually integrating the machinery was pretty was pretty was smoother than it would have been with other systems frankly um so that's a lot of work has gone into that clearly and it has been successful yeah that's good to hear that's good to hear yeah (laughs) i mean that is the target i I just think to our experience of doing doing automated effects in school Hmm? yeah you didn't need any outside help right like (laughs) (laughs) well eric Eric. Well, yeah, I mean, but there was also like Eric and Alan, you know, they, they are who they are. They're brilliant people. And like, they developed a lot of this stuff from scratch, but like, they also just couldn't stop tweaking things. You know, they couldn't like, there just wasn't right. in the world of products versus just like a, a living, Humble existing, stuff. evolving creature that was the automation system. It was just, it wasn't like, you couldn't just pull it off because it would be, oh, wait, we're still updating the e-stop code on that particular one. Use this one. And they're like two identical DWOOs or whatever. Um, right. Or the, pull, those pull black boxes. Project that, was like, kind of like the one you needed. Yeah, exactly. Like, there was like, it was difficult at times to like, just pull it off the shelf and put it into play. Um, right. Yeah. But yeah. It, I mean, not that game. hard. I mean, Alan Hendrickson was sitting there in B1, like ready to do it. <laughs> like, the, talk about it, like having help with setting up automation. Alan, <laughs> <laughs> Alan, Alan! <laughs> I think this is bad. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like Hudson would get the same show from Broadway. All of the shit would show up, and they're like, we're not going to change. It's coming back, and it's going to go on tour. And all we're going to do is like remove two inches and then that one axis is going to be a different winch. And you're like, cool, it's going to be two weeks of commissioning. And you're like, what? <laughs> you're like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like if I have to open that Beckoff file, it's two weeks of commissioning. Like I like there's <laughs> yep. that is it. And you're like, you can't say that to a fucking <laughs> regional theater or, you know, sub a 10 axis show like right sweet and then you'll need two weeks of commissioning to get that up and running and then like <laughs> for the most part it'll be unusable for those two weeks well i yeah i mean that was i've asked this before i think you've both cody and harry have heard this before where it's like have you thought about go, splitting the to like simpler and more advanced or pro in terms of the of everything with creative connors like I mean, why, I mean, for, for a good number of shows, like, why are we tuning a PID loop? I mean, like most of the time you don't really, we could just run open on that, but I'd be curious 
it's pretty it's been pretty painless though having actually put it on scenery recently i think the last time i touched creative connors before this current job was 2013 so some things have been changed in the last nine years yeah i i think that the tricky thing there is like it can be open loop but it's not i mean it's something to look into for sure but like it's surprising where those things fuck you like if you don't know what you're looking at in the like split of pro and versus apprentice and we are actually kind of internally kind of hearkening back to the glory days of when there was just one stagehand uh just be from like a this is i can tell you how a stagehand works and this is going to always be true and there's not like well there's a pro and then there's this other thing and ultimately on the other end you're like well is it lifting vertically okay i know i needed some extra contactors and a slightly different drive that's up to the speed but really like if you don't care about that and you're just like trying to do the right thing you should use this one and it'll do vertical axes and you should use this one and it'll do horizontal axes if that's really what the split is but the like paradigm of pro versus apprentice has kind of grown so that there's like a chasm in between and we've like slowly started pairing back towards the middle of like they're not so different like they're like <laughs> so then at least if you only have to explain how one works then maybe we're gonna make like progress there right like and then especially like with what christian's talking about about like well if this machines are talking to you more and helping you get the right tuning so you don't have to do pid tuning or you're doing very minimal tuning or like you're hitting the tune button in spike mark and then you're just done like ah actually like that might be a better path so that there's less the savings which I think we originally thought aren't actually that drastic when you get down to it of like, yeah, you get to peel some contactors out and you get to peel like a different drive and some other things, but like you still got a drive and a case and labor and the stagehand card. And like, you've already already developed the software. It's, you know, you have the functionality. Why not? You don't have to do any PID tuning. It's just, (laughs) right. It can just be unfortunate if you don't. Yeah. You just have to accept your targeting. Right. I mean, honestly, because that's the thing that's always tough, tough though, is with, with customers that know where the abort uh, stop abort on position error is (laughs) they don't sacrifice the targeting and then they just take off the safety measures, which like (laughs) you kind of have to choose one, right? Like don't the safety measures, the safety measures, you have to accept that it doesn't quite hit the mark every time, or you have to care about the tuning. Like, yeah, that's it's actually, it was was almost like a minor thing, but it's like, it's almost like, can I change the tolerance on positioning? So I don't see decimal points because I don't, I don't care about a half degree on the turntable and I wish everyone would stop talking about it. And if I ask mm-hmm. you, did it make to target? And you'd be like, no, we're at 179.82. And I'm like, Oh God, <laughs> we <don't need> <laughs> we're, <Yeah>. we're fine. <laughs> that's uh, that's acceptable. That's actually a pretty interesting part. I mean, especially when we talked about earlier, like I only want to care about feet because do you really care about 22 inches a second versus 24 inches a second on your move? Like you probably don't give a shit. You're like, I kind of care about like, is it a 10 second move? Is it a six second move? Is it a, you know, whatever, yeah. like from the show perspective. So like, yeah, like, do I really, I mean, yeah, probably from the software level, we're always going to care about it. So 
but it's an interesting point about like, well, I mean, it's just it's always do we count, expose right? that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do At the end of the day, it's always just counts. What do you talk about when you're on stage? Do you have moves in minute that takes minutes, and do you have moves that take inches? Like it's oh, that wall is six feet away. Can I get a couple feet closer? And I want it to be done in two seconds or five seconds or whatever. It's like those are the units we talk in. Yeah. And if you can, if I don't have to take my shoes and socks off to count up to it, that's always a helpful <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah. But at least that having the information there in front of you, you can have that conversation. It's like, well, what are we shooting for? How close does it need to be? Yeah. Whenever I do the operator trainings and I like tell them like, here's your, here's your little like four boxes that you get to enter to change a move. And like, I'm going to tell you right now, you're the operation, like the automation operator, like position and like A cells and D cells you should care about. But no one except for you sitting in this chair cares about that, right? Like, and frankly, the software does that for you. Like, it is calculated based on these three values, but the thing exposing is ramp time and total time. So, like, your director or your stage manager or whatever is really going to care about total time. And you're the arbiter of that, like, you know, counting it back. But, like, the software, like, UI-wise, that's not immediately apparent. Like, that they're not separate in some way like they're all in the stack so like without that like preamble of someone explaining to you because that usually clicks with everybody of like oh okay cool yeah sure i get that they care about this i have to know a little bit about this that's fine so like yeah minimally from like a ui update and thinking about how we like present that to people it's like an interesting like oh hmm, yeah maybe yeah maybe there is something there yeah yeah break it out to what we're actually going to be talking about because yeah, like that's a I had a conversation. There's a great sec designer here on the faculty at, at State, uh, Ralph Funicello. Uh, guy's got more, got a lot of experience, and he's one of the just a nice guy. And we were talking about how designers talk about automation, and that's actually one of the changes I want to see is is better integration with the artistic team and how we talk about motion. They don't need to know mm-hmm. about counts they don't need it about a lot of this stuff but what do they need to know about in order to effectively implement it and having a better communication about that you you read a lot of the books on automation and it's all nuts and bolts and wires and code and very little of it is like what do you say to the performer when they want to step onto the turntable you know mm-hmm. practically we know mm-hmm. that there's a better way to approach a turntable in order to get on and get off when it's moving but good luck finding that in a book anywhere I mean, the close, I think Jim Shumway did a really nice job in his book on performer flying. It's like the only, it was striking. It was like the only book about stage automation I've ever read where it was like, this is how you talk to the performer. And it's such an important part of it. Yeah. There's very little mention of an actor anywhere yeah. in any of the technical books, <laughs> except for like as a figure in a drawing. Yeah, exactly. They're like a design value. It's like there are six of these actors and they will weigh an average of 160 pounds. Therefore, <laughs> try not to shear any of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and even on the safety stuff, it's the technicians who are almost always going to be at more risk because they're the ones installing it and maintaining it and doing everything with it. And then they'll also ride it just like the actors will. So it's like, it's even on that front. But it's like, it doesn't work unless it works. Like what I like most about automation, if it works in the show and like, how do you smoothly get onto it, get off of it? How do you be not afraid of it? Because if the actor's afraid of the mm-hmm. piece, it's just never going to look right. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. My dog is mad about one thing. 
I had to lock my cat out, otherwise she would probably be part of this uh, podcast. Yeah, he's been he's been good for roughly two hours, so it, it might be I might have to run. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's the signal. <laughs> that might be go to hit the dog butt barky button. <laughs> yeah, he's cute, but he barks. That's the corgi curse. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been great. Thanks for uh, inviting me on. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Inaugural interview episode. I think <laughs> it went pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we'll yeah. see how, here how it comes yeah. out. You have to like splice it together. <laughs> it's going to be 10 yeah. minutes. It'll be in between our ad breaks. <laughs> it's going to be like, and Ben said he hates all of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've got enough video and voice now. We can just deep fake you to pump in our stuff anyway. So. <laughs> Oh, I think I did it. I did a nice job of complimenting your equipment. I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we did a good job. I think it was good. Yeah, you could have shit on us if you wanted. Like, I, I don't think that we would have cut it. Honestly, like, I think we have. I, I don't think there is much that much to <laughs> shit on. I mean, the you know the split A cell D cells is a big one. You know, there's some of how like we talk about things. I would. But in general, I mean, the system works well, so it's nice. It's clearly a product someone has cared about and not just tried to value engineer into the lowest possible common denominator, you know, and I think it's doing interesting things, so. Yeah. We have our own protocol. We don't just use DMX. We're not animals. (laughs) (laughs) A very, a very... uh minimalist communication protocol <laughs> which is good why, why complicate it but yeah you know running stuff running everything off the light board i mean that's the biggest thing that's got to go i mean that just has to stop yeah one the on the one out on my uh product summit list is that i didn't mention is like a hold to run like e-stop with a button that like can live because now we've got those integrations like it'd be cool to have a low dollar value like thing like Oh, we know you're going to put this in OSC and try to run it on like some smart kind of show automation thing. Like, can we like at least get you as far as like a hold to run with an e-stop in front of you and have that like when you know you're going to run those sections of the show, if you see something horrific or you get the call from the stage manager, we can at least know someone's standing on a soft stop or a, you know, hold to run with an e-stop. Right. I mean, that's is that anything more than just an NO switch on the e-stop circuit? I think there's some little bit of networking. It's got to like funnel into our showstopper system, but yeah. I think at the bare minimum, it could be that. Yeah. yeah. It could just be like a remote e-stop button, but that would then be, you know, the cat zero stop as opposed to, you could also do soft stop. and Yeah. Because you always do a cat zero on your e-stop. Yeah. Yeah. Always cat zero on the e-stop. And then. Have you thought about going to cat one? On the e-stop? Well, I guess not on the e-stop. On e-stop has always been cat zero, but we have considered integrating a cat one stop, I, oh yeah. yeah sorry i'm sorry i'm interrupting you but i would say the one biggest note i have and this is from the consulates and i've got like consulates that are like 15 years old but uh mm-hmm. a a an abort button or a non-emergency stop button i know you can do it with the hold to run button but that's just not like adequate in my opinion but like just having a stop without having to hit the e-stop button would be an awesome feature to see more prominent because and then it's also like it's also good for the operators and all where it's like it doesn't build confidence when when especially when the tech tables in the 
close enough to the stage that the actors could see it to have the operator smashing the e-stop when it's like, oh, the orchestra was a little late. We're going to reset and take that cue again. Like yeah. having a, a just a soft stop without it. And again, I know there is a, a function that does that, but it would be nice to be a little bit more prominent and not like use this button that's labeled as something else to stop motion. There's, yeah. Aren't there alternate keycaps that say soft stop? There are. I mean, I think yeah, it's just a fault. Yeah. It's a fault of the design of the showstopper, which was the first thing I helped design when I started at Creative Connors after I graduated from college. Or maybe I started when I was an intern. Uh, so I can I can rest that sh- just right on my own shoulders. And it is <laughs> a sitting in my notes of like, hey, the orientation of these buttons, like I think the soft stop slash hold to run button should be demonstrably different from the other ones. Like, yeah, I want to see like a uh, the big thing was like a space bar style, like bottom sort of like this is your hold to run or your soft stop and either potentially like the keycap be ambiguous enough so that then you have like text on the silk screen or if we went into the world of like LED keycaps or anything like that or like color changing RGB or something like that so that it would be noticeably and demonstrably different than the other ones as opposed to like all blue LEDs that we have now. So mm-hmm. I don't I don't disagree. I think you're totally right. I think that is it should be a um, better. It should be more clear and it should be more like it should feel in the hand more specifically about what that yeah. button does. Plus yeah. right now where the hold to run is, it's really hard for me to tape it down. Uh, so if you could make it a little clearer and get a little more room in there, so I could. We there's a switch in Spike Mark to do it. Yeah, you I just know. Check the box. The um, the Australians for the the Hudson systems used to take a uh, their like fifty cent uh, piece, which was big enough, and then a stack of their one cent pieces, and that that like taped together would perfectly sit in the finger enable. Yep. Like, yep. Like, <laughs> Cool. Yeah, yeah, you can, that's, that's, that. And that's the problem with hold to runs is like it gets to the point where the operator's like, it's so much better to have like a specific moment of you're picking up the switch. This is the effect where I have to be holding this and like watching mm-hmm. versus like I for anything, for this curtain to open six inches while it's ten feet in the air, I have to be holding down this hold to run. It just it starts to limit that the usefulness. Yeah. yeah. Every hold to run feature I've seen, I've seen on site defeated. someone show yeah. me their piece of wood that they got in the shop to defeat it. Like, yeah. oh, we could go to the foot pedal. Like Tate's big on the foot pedal. And you're like, I saw those Aussies with the same fucking chunk of wedge of <laughs> thing that they shoved into it. Yeah, I mean, it's always got, you just need like a, a rubber bouncy ball and a piece of tape. And that's always going to perfectly <laughs> mimic the human thumb. Like there's yeah. always going to be a way around it. So make it something it's not. Yeah. Make it easy so it can be effective, I think, is probably like that middle ground of like, if you yeah. make it so staunchly rigid, then people will just defeat it. But if it's not inconvenient, but it's effective, then then it becomes a good tool. Yeah. And it's and it's it's like if you do, if you can make it enabled on a cue by cue basis, it's actually helping the operators because then they're, you know, that's again, going back to the theme park versus like the theater. Like, I don't want to design theme park systems. I don't want to design for a 16 year old. <laughs> you know, summer employees. I want to design for professional operators or people aspiring to be professional operators. I want something where it's like, oh, this is the effect where it could go bad. It could hit someone. We're going to have this cue be hold to run, pick up the switch and be holding it for this set. You know, is, is that you, the deck mm-hmm. carpenter, whoever, but like, oh, for this moment, it's dangerous. We all know that we don't want something to happen. This is a tool to help us. Not like, mm-hmm. 
oh, the uh, the designer thinks that I'm a child and need to be holding this at all times. Yeah. You know, we could do that. This is uh, if it was on an, less on a queue by queue basis, but effect by effect basis, we did implement mm. um, this on the new stagehands that mm. we've sold very few mm-hmm. of this uh, interlock signal, because that was also one of interlocks were always very woodgy and we never had like a good way to implement them in spike mark. And now we have specific interlock signals for forward reverse and all stop yeah as that's well as awesome that's awesome level. so you could do an all stop run to like a plunger dead man that's just you know a switch with its feed you know fed 24 volts and receiving and like you know for the lift in the trap for that specific move every time you want to run the lift access like that's tied into the at the stagehand level of like enabling disabling and you the operator who isn't the person that's you know you're expecting the stage the stage hand, like the stage manager to be there to do it and you see it in spike mark like oh i'm getting you're an there. all stop that's gonna be because of you know the hold the hold to run that's in the basement so like yeah yeah it's not q by q but it is we do now have it on effect by effect on the new that's uh, nice that's very nice yeah Anywho, I have to go uh, tell, deal with my dog and also pee because I drank three beers while I was sitting here. So, uh. <laughs> well, it's been fun. We should do it again. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, Thanks for asking. You'll me. be our first repeat. Okay. <laughs> say hi. To, first and last. I'm telling you, I'm gonna be your last going too. Oh, sure, 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 sure. All right. Well, thanks, Ben. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of Circuit and Gear. A uh, huge shout out to. Ben Clark for being our first uh, interviewee. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed that because uh, we enjoyed recording it. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.